Thank you for listening to the Proclaim Church Sermon Podcast. Proclaim's mission is to make Jesus known through gospel-centered worship, community, and mission. For regular meeting times, more information about our beliefs, or other information, check us out at ProclaimKC.org. 2 Thessalonians 3, 1-5 Finally, brothers... Pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you and that we may be be delivered from wicked and evil men for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God, and to the steadfastness of Christ. You guys can have a seat. Good morning, everybody. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your faithfulness in sustaining us and keeping us, providing for us. Thank you for the way that you've provided for Proclaim and the way that you've done uh, work through Proclaim uh, in, in our city, in our community, and um, in us, God. And we pray that you'd continue to, to do that work uh, in, the, in the midst of a year that is filled with uh, left turns and unknowns. You're not tricked or fooled by any of them. You're not surprised. And you continue to uh, work out your purposes in the midst of what seems to us to be um, troubles and you know, obstacles and sometimes even insurmountable difficulties. None of that stops you. It's never stopped you. And it won't stop you now. And so we pray, God, that we would depend on you, that we would look to you, that we would uh, seek you, and that you would reveal all the ways that you are working to us. We thank you. We pray all this in your name. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, our, our neighbor, um, who has a pool in their, in their backyard, uh, allowed us to come over, bring the kids over, and to, to swim uh, one afternoon, on a Sunday afternoon. And it's one of those pools that has, you know, uh, the shallow end on one side, and then it gets deeper, and you've got the deep end and the diving board and the whole thing. It's pretty nice, actually. And at whatever point, as we're swimming, Ryder... Uh, decides that he is going to practice his diving. It's something that Ryder and Josie had been working on uh, last summer and not having a ton of opportunities to swim so far this summer. uh, He decided, I'm going to try to figure this diving thing out, you know, and generally their dives looked more like outstretched belly flops than than a dive. And so they needed some work. 
And that, so that was good. Uh, and they begin to, to do this. And, and Ryder uh, kind of begins to figure this thing out. He begins to get the hang of it. And that kind of revved up Josie's internal, like, comp, uh, competitive spirit and, like, performance issues, right? And so she needed to be able to figure this uh, dive thing out. And with every failed attempt at diving, with every time that she came up looking at us like, did I get it? And we were like, eh, not so much. The frustration just mounted and mounted and mounted until it, it kind of exploded. She can't do it, she says. She doesn't want my advice on how to do it. Because every time I give her advice, it makes her feel like she isn't any good. Well, you're not, you know? That's why I keep giving you advice. (laughs) She wants to learn to do it on her own so that when she succeeds, she's the one that did it. But inevitably, what happens is she gives up and she decides to go back to swimming because she knows she can do that well and she can't get this dive thing Figured out, and defiantly, she says, well, I don't want to dive anyways. I didn't even want to do that, ever. Okay, okay, sure. Obviously, that's not true. It had been the second time in just a couple of weeks where there had been a kind of an outburst like this. The first time had been surrounding Legos. I can't build Legos as good as Ryder. I don't even want to build Legos. We all have a little Josie in us, don't we? We want to do something. We feel like, you know, we want to do something so that we feel like we, we did it. I did that thing. We don't, we don't want to need others to be able to accomplish it. We, we want to succeed and we want to feel that sense of, like, I accomplished this thing. And if I can't get that satisfaction, well, then I'll just do something. I'll just shoot a little bit lower. I'll do something that I know I can succeed in. I won't even try that. See, from the moment we're born, we have this thing uh, that tells us that we ought to be like self-determinant, self-sufficient people. I can do this on my own. I can do this life thing on my own. And yet, what we really need is to recognize our need for God, for everything in our lives. See, at the start of our passage this morning, Paul begins with this word, finally, Finally, the topic that he's discussing is shifting at the end of this letter, and it's shifting to the subject of work. Uh, next week, next week we'll talk about Paul's warning to the Thessalonians uh, in regards to their idleness or the potential of their idleness in their work life, in their everyday put food on the table kind of work. But before he gets to that, he shares these few verses where he's telling them their absolute dependency 
on God's work, particularly and especially their absolute dependency on God's work in order to do gospel work. See, this is the heart of this passage. The heart of this passage is, is, is simply gospel work necessitates God's work. If we're going to accomplish anything, if we're going to be a part of doing anything that has any kind of eternal significance for God, then we absolutely, 100% in every way, are completely dependent on God doing his work. We'll look at this in, in two different ways. First, the necessity of God for effectiveness in gospel work, and then secondly, the necessity of God for faithfulness in gospel workers. And, and let me tell you, friends, you might be sitting there thinking gospel work, gospel workers, that's all fine and dandy. I'm just like, I'm just like an ordinary Christian. Like I'm just like an ordinary Christian that comes to church on Sundays and maybe reads my Bible some and, and uh, you know, I, I do like, I try to do some good things, but like, I'm not like a gospel worker. I'm not, I don't do, I don't do gospel work. I'm not like a pastor or a missionary or something, but, but let me tell you, that is the wrong mindset. If you have been changed by the gospel, if you are a believer, then you are to do gospel work. You are doing gospel work, period. You are a gospel worker. That is what you're called to. It looks different for different people. But we're all called to that as believers in some way, and we all depend completely on, on God. So we have to ask ourselves, what would be more satisfying? What would be more satisfying? Seeing how well you can do your thing or seeing what God wants to do in you, through you, and around you. What would be more satisfying in your life to get to the end of it and go, ah, I, I accomplished my thing? Or to get to the end of life and say, I saw God work. I saw God work in me, through me, and around me. Kingdom work, gospel work, that's where our need for God is most evident. Nothing happens unless God makes it happen. And I think that a big reason why most Christians would rather pursue other things, would rather not identify themselves as a gospel work, that's not my thing, I'm just, you know, over here doing this, is because we, we don't really want to depend on God. We want to depend on ourselves. And I'll tell you that I have spent a lot of energy on things which on the face looked really churchy, but in reality were mostly void of real gospel work. So if we want to see God doing what God does. And if we want to see that, see the effect uh, of, of gospel work in, in the world and in our lives, then it really, it starts in one place. It starts in one place for Paul, and it starts in the same place for us. And that place is prayer. We need to recognize the necessity of God 
for effectiveness in gospel work, and that should lead us to seek him and to ask him. And we see that in verses one and two of chapter three of Second Thessalonians. Paul asks the Thessalonians to pray for three things, three prayers for him and his companions. Could you imagine getting a letter from the Apostle Paul, from Paul himself, saying, hey guys, proclaim I really need you to pray for me for these three things. How wild would that be? And, and, and he asks them to pray for three, three things. First, he asks them to pray for the spread of the gospel. Paul's first prayer is that the word of the Lord may speed ahead, it says. The word of the Lord being Paul's way of saying this gospel message. And here's how we, or here's how I like to define the gospel in one sentence. If you're like, gospel, you keep saying gospel, what's gospel mean? In one sentence, this is how I like to define it. It's how God loves and saves rebel sinners through Christ's life, death, and resurrection. That's the gospel in, in, in five seconds. How God loves and saves rebel sinners like you and me through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what Paul is praying for, asking them to pray for, is that the gospel would speed ahead. This word that we translate speed ahead, it's a word that's usually used, typically used for, uh, uh, to describe people who are running, okay? Now you might say to yourself, well, you've never seen me run. I don't, wouldn't call that speeding ahead, but I understand, <laughs> But you get what Paul is saying here. His desire is for the gospel to, to go, not, not just go like, you know, I'm eventually I'm going to get there, but to speed, to, to spread, to, to run throughout the world. Are you praying diligently for the gospel to spread like that? Like, is that a regular part of your prayer life to stop and to pray, God, would, would the gospel speed ahead in, in my neighborhood, in my workplace, in my city, in the world? God, would, you, would, would it spread? Second, he asks for them to pray for the reception of the gospel. He says it like this. He says that it would be honored as happened among you. Do you remember from 1 Thessalonians how the gospel was received by the, that church? In 1 Thessalonians 1.9, it says, For they themselves report concerning us uh, the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. What Paul is saying is, when we go to other churches in other places, they've already heard about how, how you received the gospel, how you just absolutely, your life was changed by it. And we get to this church, and they're telling us about how you received the gospel from us, because by the time we've gotten here, the word about it has already spread that quickly. Because it was so wild how much you received it, how you turned from idols to serve the living and true God. In chapter two, verse 13, he says, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. And the gospel is accepted. 
not as the word of men, but as the word of God. When, when the gospel is received to such a degree that in your life, you turn from the other things that, that pull you away, that, that pull away your attention and your worship and your service, the other things that we, for all practical purposes, worship in our life, and we turn to God himself instead. It's such a miraculous thing. God's, the gospel is honored. It's glorified when people hear it and submit to it and obey to it. So along with this running metaphor, these two things, they create this powerful image of a, of a runner who competes and wins the prize and is so celebrated at the end. That's, that's the image that, God, that, that Paul is praying for for the gospel. That's how the word of God ought to be in our lives. And so are we praying to that end? Do we pray not only for the spread of the gospel, but for the success of the gospel in people's lives? Do we pray for people in our lives that, that they would receive God's word, not as the word of men, but as the word of God, that they would turn from their idols and that they would turn to God instead? Do we pray for that? Finally, Paul asks for them to pray for the proclaimer of the gospel. So pray for the spread of the gospel, pray for the reception of the gospel, pray for the proclaimer of the gospel as well. He says that they may be delivered from wicked and evil men. Paul knows that there will be those who will come against the gospel worker because there are those who come against the gospel message itself. You see, the reason that people will oppose the gospel worker, you and I. It's not because they hate us or because there's something wrong in us, but it's because, well, they just, they just don't like Jesus. Paul says because they don't, they don't have faith. They don't believe the gospel, and so they oppose the gospel. There's no, there's no in-between ground with the gospel. There's no neutrality. Like, you can't be a neutral party. Jesus doesn't allow for that. You either receive it or you reject it. Paul says there's people who reject it. They don't have faith, and so they oppose the gospel worker, and he's praying for God, or asking them to pray, that God would protect them. And here's what's, what's comforting to me. Paul, asking them to pray for the worker, what he's saying there is, hey, friends, gospel, or God really cares about you. God doesn't only care about the spread and the reception of the gospel. I mean, he does. That is priority, but God also cares for you. You, particularly. How comforting is that for these Thessalonians who are being persecuted day in and day out, afflicted because of their choice to worship God rather than the idols all around them in their culture. 
How comforting is that for us? And yet, here's Paul, still afflicted, and here we are, still experiencing pains and trials, right? And the question that comes to my mind is, if God really cares about me and he cares about you, then what gives? Why do we continue to experience these problems? Why do the Thessalonians continue to experience affliction? Why does Paul continue to experience affliction? You see, I believe that God allows the conflict and he uses it to shape us because it reveals to us just how gloriously necessary he is. Now think about this. If everything went well all the time, if everything you put your hand to worked, if every gospel opportunity you were just, it just went swimmingly for you, how quickly would you begin to think, dude, I'm pretty awesome. I, I can do this. I am able. How quickly do we begin to forget about God? Listen, like, just evaluate your life for a second in any area where you've had sudden and immediate success, how quickly have you forgotten about God's sustaining power in your life like that? See, I believe that God uses these things to refine us, to, to keep us from falling into a, a lack of faith. falling into sin and pride. You see, I'm so glad, I'm so glad that Josie didn't figure out how to dive on her own or right away. I'm so glad that she didn't figure it out without instruction from Amanda and I. Like being able to dive is a fine skill. Like that's a good thing to be able to do, right? You could live without diving, but it's nice to be able to know how to do that. That skill may be helpful to her one day in her life. I don't know. But what I do know is that growing in humility, learning to be teachable, learning that her value doesn't come from what she can accomplish on her own, those are lessons that will help her every single day of her life. Those are character qualities that are invaluable to her, that make diving look like a joke in comparison. As a, as a father, if I can have one or the other, I, won't, I wouldn't take a moment to even debate it. I'll take the humility and the teachability. I'll take not valuing not herself based on what she can accomplish. I'll take all of those lessons over and above her ever knowing how to dive any day of the week. And I think any good father would. And friends, our father in heaven is a good father. He's a good father. And he cares so much more about what is happening in you and how he is recreating you to be like his son much more than anything that you can accomplish on the outside because he can accomplish those things in any way he wants.
He knows that we need him every day to sustain us. And so he does things in our life to draw us to him. And those things may not be fun on the face. They may not be enjoyable in the moment. But they're much more valuable in the long run. They give us depth. They give us resiliency. They give us faithfulness. And that's really where where he's going. You might you might think to yourself, I'm not sure that all this trouble and pain that I go through is is really worth it. And I think what that typically is, is it's revealing of our own lack of understanding and just how big and glorious God is, just, just our, own, our, uh, our own lack of trust in how good he actually is. We miss how much more wonderful it is, friends, to live resting in him rather than constantly relying on ourselves because I don't know about you, but I constantly... constantly fail myself. And listen, I'm not saying this to discount whatever troubles that you're going through, whatever problems that you have, whatever pains that you've experienced. I, I'm not, but, but look at Paul. Paul has had a harder life than any of us. I haven't been imprisoned. I haven't been beaten. I haven't been shipwrecked. I haven't been stoned and left for dead. Paul had multiple times, and yet, Paul is as resolved as ever that it is better to persevere in God's word through those difficulties and to depend on him rather than himself, that that is much better than to avoid and miss the opportunity to grow in our faith and in our love and in our Christ-likeness. And so we didn't give up on Josie, just like your heavenly father doesn't give up on you. We were patient even though she was making it extremely difficult to do so. I mean, parents, you know what that's like, right? You've been there with your kids. But here's the amazing thing about God. He sticks with us even when we make it really difficult. Far more than I could ever do as a father. He perseveres even, even when we aren't wanting to persevere. He perseveres. In stark contrast to the faithlessness of the evil men in our, in our passage who come against us, who come against Paul, who come against the Thessalonians, and ultimately they come against God, Paul says that the Lord is faithful. He is the faithful one. Paul doesn't Leave it up for debate. It's not like, uh, well, usually he's faithful. No, he is faithful, period. In fact, in fact, there is a necessity of God for faithfulness in gospel workers. We cannot be faithful if it was not for God's faithfulness to us first. You see, First of all, God is our source of faithfulness. 
The Lord is faithful because he will establish you. Establish here in the passage. It's, it isn't placing you somewhere outside of the trials and difficulties of life. It's not placing you somewhere where trials and, and troubles and, and opposition don't exist. Rather, the idea is, is to continually strengthen you in the midst of them. Maybe a, an illustration might be this. God's not trying, if you're a tree, if we're trees, God's not trying to plant us in a vacuum where there's nothing that's going to bother us. Rather, he roots us deeply. And as the winds and the waves of life continue to beat against us, he strengthens those roots so that we can't be knocked over so that we can face whatever condition. And in the trials you face, believe it or not, God is giving you enough of what you need to get through it. And I know sometimes it doesn't feel like that. But he's promised he will for every believer. As difficulties escalate, his strength in us, or at least our re realization of it, arises to the occasion. God's faithfulness to us gives us resolve in difficulties. And what's more, he will also guard you, the passage says. So he'll establish you and he'll guard you. The idea here is of one keeping a watch for the purpose of protecting. He, he does this particularly against the evil one. Now, the word here in this verse that's translated evil one, it could mean uh, be impersonally just about evil, or it could be a personal reference to the evil one that is Satan. Either way that you translate this particular passage, the basic idea is similar. Because who's the one that animates and activates evil but the evil one? So again, here the idea is not that you won't experience suffering or that you won't experience evil or that, uh, that problems won't ever happen to you. The, what Paul is describing is that even in the midst of that, even if Satan comes against you and he tempts you and he brings all of these other things around you, that for those who know God, for true believers, God will keep us from falling. He'll keep us from disowning him. They will not give in to Satan. They will be faithful to God, not in their own power, but because God is faithful to them. Now, that's not to say that we don't screw things up sometimes, right? And I screw things up. We'll say sometimes. Makes me feel a little bit better about myself, right? But how sweet it is to know that God's faithfulness to us gives us hope for obedience even in the midst of our mistakes, even in the midst of what I did 10 years ago or five years ago or 10 days ago or two hours ago, friends, you may be coming into this place and you may be thinking to yourself, man, I just messed up huge. And Cody, you don't know what my last three months of my life or five months of my life or 10 months of my life have been like. Friends, if you are in Christ, God is faithful to you even in the midst of all of that, and, and he can empower you to be obedient to him. 
See, God's not only the source of our faithfulness, he's also the motivation of it. And, and this is really important, especially if you've gotten, you know, fallen off the rails a little bit. Verse five, it says, may the Lord direct your hearts to, lo- to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Here is Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians, that God would direct their hearts. Paul knows that faithfulness isn't merely gritting your teeth and white knuckling it, right? You can grit your teeth and white knuckle something for a while. Like I could do most anything for like 90 days, right? I'll get through it. But at some point that wears on you and it's just, I can't keep, I can't keep it up. Our hearts need to be reoriented. Our affections and desires need to be transformed. That that transformation is the work of a faithful God. As we experience his faithfulness to us, our hearts are transformed to be faithful to him. As we realize his love for us, our hearts are transformed to love him. As we realize his steadfastness to us, when we screw up, our hearts are transformed to have perseverance, to continue to seek him, even in the midst of our struggles and trials. Think of it this way. I hope this analogy works. What makes a spouse faithful? What makes a husband and wife or a wife faithful? Is it never committing adultery? Is that what makes them faithful? Certainly, certainly, uh, adultery would make them unfaithful. But is that what makes them really, truly faithful? Someone may be prepared, ready to ditch their spouse at the first opportunity, and that opportunity just never comes. Are they really faithful? Or are they just not unfaithful? on the outside. I mean, is their heart really for their spouse? Is their heart really faithful to them, wanting them, desiring them? There is no other but them. That's faithfulness. It's not just a passive, a passive not screwing up, not doing wrong, not sinning. But, but it's an active thing. Faithfulness is active. It's, it's going towards that other person. True faithfulness is a desire for them, right? If you've ever seen a marriage, unfortunately, I've seen this too often in ministry where two people are still married, but they've just, they've got no desire for one. They're not, they're not actually going after one another relationally. Is that true faithfulness? Listen, God is faithful to you. He is coming after you. He loves you. And even when you screw up, even when you are unfaithful, he is faithful always. And that faithfulness when you realize the grace and the love and the mercy that he has, transforms your heart and you go, man, I want to be faithful to the one who's faithful to me. 
So Paul tells us where our hearts must be directed in order to remain faithful. First, we've got to dwell on God's faithful love for us, that even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's how much God loves us. That's the kind of love that should motivate us, not only to love God, not only to love Christ, but to love others because of Christ. Do you understand? Our call to love other people is not for the sake of other people. It's for the sake of Christ. Second, he calls us to dwell on Christ's steadfastness for us, that Jesus was willing to persevere, that he was willing to persevere beatings and false accusations and crucifixions. We will not and cannot be steadfast through the sufferings that we will experience if we are if we're truly following Christ. We cannot do that unless we dwell on Christ's suffering for us. Unless we remain firmly founded on what Christ did on our behalf. How will we take up our cross daily any other way? Friends, I'm, I'm continually shocked You think I wouldn't be shocked. You think it wouldn't happen anymore, but you think I wouldn't be shocked at least. But I'm continually shocked by how quickly I forget these things. How quickly in my everyday life I forget. How quickly my heart wants to abandon what God sets before me because I don't like the little cross that he's given me to bear. How quickly I give up fighting for unity in the church, the church that he shed his blood for to unify. How quickly I give up working for his word that he gave up living in heaven to come to earth to live out. How quickly I give up loving someone who has hurt me when God has loved me even though I hurt him over and over and over again in ways that I can't even imagine. Friends, it's... it's it's to our shame that oftentimes unbelievers are willing to stick with one another in deeper ways for their own agendas that they, experience, they exhibit greater degrees of loyalty to one another. than a people made a people by the free gift of grace are able to live out when a little sin crops up. even though our faithful God promises to give us what we need to get through all of those things. And he promises that he will work in us and around us and through us, we give up. And so what then should we do? If gospel work necessitates God's work. I think, I think the thing that we need more than anything is to pray. It's to do exactly what Paul is asking the Thessalonians to. To pray. Why don't I pray if gospel work necessitates God's work? I think, I think like Josie, who thought she would get more satisfaction from succeeding without anyone's help, I think I 
often think that I'll have more satisfaction if I'm able to accomplish it on my own. You see, my desire is for my glory, not God's glory. I want the credit. I think like Josie, who didn't believe that my advice to her was going to actually help her in any way, that a lot of times I, you know, if I'm really honest, I don't believe that God can or will help me, at least not in the places that I want that help. I think if I'm honest, I have a lot of moments like that, and I'm guessing that you do as well. We grow cynical because things don't go the way that we want when we want them to go that way. Right? Why pray if if it's not going to go my way and God can do it on his own? Why pray? Well, I think we ought to pray because what that's what God asks us to do first and foremost. That's how he's set it up. Even Jesus is praying all the time for things. Second, I think it develops our relationship with him. Listen, teaching Josie how to dive, that's a, that's a memory, that's a moment in our relationship as father and daughter that we get to share now. Some parts of that memory aren't as joyful as others, I'll admit. But that's all part of, part of it. And, and the story does end well. After a short break from diving, she sticks with it. And Amanda made a suggestion, hey, maybe tell her to do this. And I go over and I explain it to her. And voila, the next time she jumps in the pool, I won't say perfect dive, but it, it'll... It falls in the classification of a dive. There's so much joy in our being able to celebrate that together and her coming up and going, you did it, you did it, yes, that was it. And she's excited and I'm excited and Amanda's excited and Ryder doesn't care, he's doing his thing. But, but we're excited. God wants to celebrate with you. He wants you to celebrate with him. The God of the universe allows us to partner with him in what he's doing. How amazing is that? Jesus says, until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you'll receive and your joy may be full. That's, there's actually more joy in seeking God than in doing it on your own. The last thing that I'll say about prayer is this. Prayer keeps us humble. Man, every time that I have to go to God in prayer and to say, God, I can't do it. I need you. God, I can't do it. I need you. Turns my eyes away from myself, away from me being the center of the universe and puts it where they ought to be on God. It is humbling, but it is good. I love what Paul Miller says in his book, A Praying Life. He said this, Strong Christians do, do pray more, but they pray more because they realize how weak they are. They don't try to hide it from themselves. Friends, stop hiding from yourself just how weak you really are. Confess it, admit it, and find strength in the faithfulness of God.
You see, in gospel work, ministry, just in life in general, there is a temptation to go out and to attempt to be effective outside of God. Now, now you can do that and you can have a effect on things, but the effect that you're having is not a gospel effect. It's not an internal, eternal investment. It's an earthly one. Don't be tempted to sacrifice faithfulness to an eternal God for temporary earthly effectiveness. That's not a good trade long-term. Don't be tempted to think you can do it on your own. Don't be tempted to think disobedience is justified. Don't be tempted to miss out on the joy of the destination because the journey is difficult. It's hard, friends, because we can't do it alone. We need God. Gospel work necessitates God's work. In fact, in fact, gospel work is all about God's work. God's work in choosing us before the foundation of the world. God's work in creating and sustaining us. God's work in sending his son. God's work in living a perfectly obedient life that we never lived. That God, it's Christ's work in bearing the cross, bringing justice to sin and justifying us as sinners. It's the Father's work in raising Christ and exalting him and adopting us and giving us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee, all of the gospel is God's work. And we get to be a part of that. How amazing. And every time that we come together and every time that we share in communion, we are reminded of his faithfulness at the cross. We're reminded of his faithfulness because of the cross. So Christ commanded us to remember it through communion. And this remembering is uh, it's, it's a recentering on Christ. It's a reorienting of our hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ, just as our passage says. And so we're told to examine our lives before we come to communion. And this is what I'd like to do this morning. I'd like you to take a minute to examine your life. And particularly, I want you to examine your life and consider where am I depending on myself and refusing to depend on God. Where am I doing that? Let's take a minute to examine our lives with that in view, and then we'll take communion together.